want to take the opportunity to say Merry Christmas to us. We are certainly in that season. And while the offering is finishing, being those guys taking up that offering, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 so we can get settled in here to the Word of God as we preach and proclaim His goodness and His house on what we know to be the Lord's day. Matthew chapter 1. Thank you guys for all the help. Uh, thank you for those that were out at our parade, the Christmas parade yesterday. That was a lot of fun for all of you that came out and froze your nubs off with us. It was a good time. Downtown was packed. I could not believe how many people were downtown. Uh, we'll show a picture of that to you next week. And, uh, but Matthew chapter 1 is where we can be going, and they're going to be taking, finish, finishing taking up the offering. Uh, as you're able, I know we're multitasking some things here, but as you're able, please join me in prayer if you would. Jesus, as we humble ourselves before you and we enter this season of celebration of Christmas, we ask, as we always do, that your Spirit would guide us in all things. And, and Lord, I pray specifically for this season of preaching as we look forward to the great day of Christmas, that, that it would be very fruitful and your words spoken, not mine. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, I don't know about you, but I have always loved, if you didn't hear me, Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll be. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've always loved horses. When I was very young, back in the caveman days when you'd actually buy calendars and put them on the wall, uh, I would always get calendars that had scenes like ranching type scenes that included horses. And there's just something so majestic and beautiful. I still, even to this day, we, my wife and I own horses, and I, I love them. They're such a neat animal. And, uh, but as I grew older and was very blessed to live in a family that was able to supply the ability and pastures and barn and hay and all the things that you need to be able to own horses, I've been blessed to own a lot of them over the years. And what I can tell you is that there is a very marked difference between simply being a fan of these animals and looking at pictures of them it's one thing to look at a picture of a group of horses running, and it's entirely different to stand on the edge of a field and to be watching a group of horses running, and you can feel the ground thumping beneath your feet. It's a very different experience. Uh, it's one thing to see a picture of 1,000 pounds of beautiful horse muscle rippling, mane blowing in the wind, and it's entirely different to stand on the edge of the field and one of them comes up to you and you reach your hand out and you feel the blast of hot air out of its flared nostrils. It's a very different experience to, to be there, to experience it, and to know it better than just a, a far-off intellectual kind of knowledge. I'd like to suggest to us this morning that Christmas can be known in a somewhat far-off intellectual kind of way. And it has been on my heart for some time now for us to experience it a little bit closer it's been on my heart for actually quite a long time now uh, to take this, to set aside this Christmas season to, to do a character survey of sorts throughout the beginning of the Gospels as we see the Christmas story unfold. And throughout the process of that, certainly we will see something of our knowledge of God increasing throughout that process. But for us just not to see a picture of it, but for us to experience Christmas maybe a little bit closer than we have before, understanding the scriptural truths behind what took place maybe just a little bit more intimately this year. Does that sound good? 
I hope it does. Uh, When we open up to Matthew chapter 1, we come first to verses 1 through 17 that include a genealogy. Now, you might think to yourself, that is a very boring way to open up the greatest story of all time. And in some respect, I would agree with you. But it's important for us to understand that this genealogy is anything but boring. And the reason for which is it's important, it'll be helpful for us to understand just a little bit of a Jewish understanding as to why this genealogy is there. For example, when two young people get to know each other, and then they decide to get married, and perhaps they're getting closer to planning their wedding date, they will then go to the courthouse, and they will get their marriage certificates or license and all the things that they need in preparation for getting married. And what will, they will always ask, the clerk there behind the desk will ask to see both of your either driver's license, and in some cases your driver's license, and your social security card. Uh, in these ancient times in which the Bible was written, they didn't have driver's license and social security cards. What they had instead were genealogies of their family lineage. So when a girl or a young man were going to get married, they, in a very similar kind of context, because it was understood legally in a similar way in which it is today, they didn't have pull out the driver's license, but they would do is a verbal telling of their genealogy to give credence to who, that they are actually who they say that they are. And in some areas of the world, this is still the case. In some areas of Africa, they don't have social security cards or driver's license. You'll ask somebody who they are, and for them to give validity to who it is that they are, they will then give you their family lineage much in the same way that you see verses 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 1. Uh, So this Jewish understanding tells us that this genealogy is definitely not nothing. It's giving credibility to who it is that this Jesus is. And not only that, we also know in the Old Testament that Jesus was predicted, at least reference to the Christmas story, the Christmas understanding of his entry into the earth. Uh, 300, approximately 330 Old Testament prophecies pertaining to this Jesus coming. Uh, I'll give you three examples. We obviously know in the story of Abraham, when God said in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, and it was obviously not Abraham, but it was one who would come through his lineage, that being Jesus, obviously. Uh, You think of when it was said to David, for you and your house, you will have a kingdom which will endure forever. Obviously, that was not David particularly, but it was one who would come through his lineage. That would be Jesus. Uh, You think of Isaiah 9, verse 6. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, And this is why in different areas in the New Testament, for example, in Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus healed a blind, someone who was mute and blind, uh, the people watching this take place said, could this be the son of David? Uh, Could this be the one through the lineage of Abraham that would then be the promised Messiah, the promised Redeemer? Could this be the son of David? This is why you hear them saying these kinds of things. So I hope that maybe to some small degree, this Jewish understanding of a genealogy, and and I would love to be able to go through this piece by piece with you, and we could do a great study, and perhaps someday we'll take like three years worth of Wednesday nights to actually go through these genealogies and take each person that's referenced and see what we can understand from them scripturally in the Bible. Uh, but for now, we need to understand what these genealogies were for and that it gave credence to who it is that Jesus was. To the Jewish reader, that genealogy meant everything. It was the social security card. 
It was the copy of the social security card in the front of the letter. It was the copy of the driver's license making known that this Jesus is indeed who he says that he is. And then we come to verse 18, which I invite you to look at now, where it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Now in a moment I've got some pictures that I'm going to be showing you, so I don't have words to represent points that we commonly have. But something that you could use as a point of today's sermon, something that you can write down, put in the front cover of your Bible, and take to the bank, is that Jesus' birth was literal, not figurative, and not metaphorical. Let me say that again for us. Jesus' birth was literal. It actually happened. It was not figurative, and it was not metaphorical. The Bible says now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Uh, There's a very common view in our world today that the virgin birth, that Jesus' entry into earth was just kind of a metaphorical thing representing the holiness of Christ. Uh, And dear friends, that is definitely not the case. It's a common notion in our day-to-day, and even in Bible times, the Pharisees struggled with this same notion, this same understanding that Jesus came from a virgin's womb. In John 8, when the Pharisees are debating with Jesus, There's this one line where they say, we were not born of fornication, almost in reference to say that Jesus was, that he came from a fornicating type of relationship before Mary and Joseph were married. Uh, Reject all notions that Jesus was just this metaphorical, that his coming into earth was just this metaphorical kind of thing. It actually happened just the way in which it says that it was. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Now, if you approach God in an idolatrous kind of way, if you approach God that's a God that is not the God of the Bible and expect for this God and all of his realities to be able to fit inside of your three-pound brain, you will definitely undoubtedly come upon things like the virgin birth or like the Trinity, for example, that you will not understand and it will be a stumbling block to you as is the case every time. But, If you approach the God of the Bible, who is full of majesty and awesome in wonder and residing in an element that we are not currently, he he, he operates outside of time in which you and I are. He operates outside of the reality of the sin-cursed nature in which you and I are. If you approach the God of the Bible and understanding that he is high and lifted up, that his ways and thoughts are not our ways, if you approach the God of the Bible, you'll go through life simply expecting that you will come upon many things that you do not understand and understand perfectly. How does the virgin conceive and bear a child? I don't know. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and that's how it happened, and I believe it because it's what the Word of God says, and I should expect that this wonderful, majestic, high and lifted up, full of majesty and all power and wonder, that God is not going to fit entirely inside of my three-pound brain. The Bible even says that we live in this earth in a veiled, foggy kind of way right now on earth. I just should expect, we should expect that there will be things of this great God that we serve that we will not understand perfectly, and I would say that the virgin birth is one of those things. But the Bible says undoubtedly, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. If you got it, say got it. Good. Now look to the second part of that verse, and it says, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. 
Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took to him his wife, and he did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So what can we say if we were to do a kind of character survey? And what could we learn about our Lord as we become more acquainted and experience Christmas, hopefully in a more profound way from the Scriptures than we ever have before as Christians? Uh, First, let's take a look at the person of Joseph. And again, I don't have words for you. I do have a picture that we can show you guys. Go ahead and show that now. What we could definitely say of Joseph, however, is that he was a man of character and of humble obedience. And you see this picture here, and something that I appreciate about this picture is that it depicts Joseph being a relatively young man. Many of the depictions that you'll see, he's like a really, really old guy. That probably wasn't the case. Most Jewish young men and women were married between the ages of 16 and 18. Very likely, Joseph and Mary were both teenagers. This picture depicts him probably being older than a teenager, but a younger man on the spectrum of old and young, and I appreciate that about this particular picture. Joseph was probably a young man, and he was betrothed to Mary. Uh, Betrothal may be something you're familiar with. Maybe it isn't. In our culture today, in which we currently reside, people just kind of marry who they want to marry. Whereas back in those days, and even still in many places in the world, they have something called betrothal. And a very overarching understanding of this is that the parents of children will determine if there's a good match. And it will be basically a set-up, arranged a marriage, not based on the hormonal-driven decisions that's common in our culture, but based on logic, good, mature decision-making of whether these young people make a good match, of whether there's unity among the families. And interestingly enough, even in places in the world today where there is still betrothal, their divorce rates are much lower than that of America, interestingly enough. One of my best friends in college was an Indian, not as in Native American, but as in he grew up in India. His grandparents came from a very traditional area of India, and his grandparents, the first time they ever saw each other, were on their wedding day. If that throws you for a loop, say yes. (laughs) That would be a little bit different, but that was the case. That was very much the arrangement in ancient days, and that was the case for Joseph and Mary. And out of nowhere, Mary shows up pregnant. Now... Let me talk to the guys for just a quick second here. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Perhaps you're more sanctified than I am, but my first response would not have been to react in the way that Joseph did. My thought would have been that woman, she has been unfaithful, and I'm going to get rid of her and perhaps even make a public spectacle of her. Uh, Joseph was not that kind of a man. Joseph was a man of character. Undoubtedly, I would say we could say he knew something of God's word in the Old Testament where God said, vengeance is mine. 
Joseph was not seeking to be vengeful, even the opposite. He didn't want to cause her any undue embarrassment. So he was planning to break off this arranged marriage even privately. And then, of course, we know that Joseph had an accurate understanding of the way in which God came to him with this information. In a dream, an angel of the Lord visits Joseph and gives him the particular instruction of, don't worry, Mary is is pregnant of the Holy Spirit. You are still to marry her. Name his name Jesus. That He's going to save his people from his sins, etc., etc. We understand that Joseph had a proper understanding of the biblical God and that his approach to God was not, if I don't understand it all, I'm just going to leave it all. He had this understanding that God is high and mighty and that God's ways are definitely not his own. So that when the angel of the Lord gave him instruction, his response was one of humble obedience. I don't know about you, but the person of Joseph convicts me and not just a little bit. He was faithful. Uh, We don't really know much about Joseph beyond what we know in the Christmas story. The last real scriptural reference we have is when Jesus is 12 years old. And there was, they were traveling to the city, and you'll remember the story where they were traveling away, and Jesus stayed behind in the temple. And then Mary says, your father and I, that's the last reference we have of Joseph. So the understanding is that between Jesus being the ages of 12 and 30, that sometime in that window, Joseph died. Uh, we understand that Joseph was a carpenter. He had the trade of carpentry. We also know that this family was not particularly wealthy. It says in Luke chapter 2 that when Jesus was eight days old, they go into the temple to do all the Jewish customs of the time for the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant law, and we understand that they brought as a sacrifice two turtle doves. Uh, We also know, however, that the, the preferred way was to bring a lamb and either a pigeon or a turtle dove, but in Leviticus it makes clear that if somebody was not able to afford the lamb, that they could bring two turtle doves instead. And they bring, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, Jesus obviously just being an eight-day-old baby at the time, bring two turtle doves. They weren't particularly wealthy, but I think we could say plainly that the application for us is that if we want to be used of God, and obviously not, no one's going to be used of God in the exact same way that Joseph was used to be the adopted father of the Son of God, but we ought to be like Joseph in that we are familiar with the Scriptures Joseph was steady, he was definitely obedient, and he definitely was okay with not being the center of attention. When I thought about modern-day versions of Joseph, I thought about, honestly, I thought about some of you. I thought about some of the people at New Covenant Community Church, well acquainted with the Scriptures, steady, obedient to the Holy Spirit of God, And very much, I thought about naming some of you by name, but I know that you, based on your very clear understanding that you don't even like being the center of attention, that you'd hate me for it, uh, you don't want to be the center of attention. And can I just say, I'm very humbled to be able to be the pastor of such a church. I don't take any credit for that. That's been the Holy Spirit of God that has brought that about. Uh, But when I thought of the modern-day versions of Joseph, I thought of some of the people, some of the seasoned saints at New Covenant Community Church. Uh, But what does this tell us, however, about our Lord? As we've done some of a character survey of the person of Joseph, uh, we know something of the how of Christmas through the means of the virgin birth, but we could also ask the proper question, why? Why was it that God was to come in this kind of way? Why was it that Jesus was going to leave heaven and come down to earth? And I would say that both the prophet and the angel make those things clear to us. 
In verse 23, the second part of that verse, where it quotes the prophet Isaiah, it says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So apparently, the first Christmas and the reasoning behind it was that there, there was a need, there was a call for us to have God with us. And the angel even explicitly tells us why in the second part of verse 21. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, if you are a Christian and you're well acquainted with the Scriptures and you have an understanding of this, that there was a need for Jesus to come and be among us, that there was a need for him to come and save us from our sins, you just start to understand that Christmas, to a degree, highlights the magnitude of of our sins, because it required Jesus to come and be among us. It required him to come and to save his people from their sins. Perhaps a song you've already heard this Christmas season, and undoubtedly you'll hear it on the car radio, a song that perhaps you didn't expect to find such great theology, a song titled, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. If you know that song well, like I do, you'll know that the bridge of that song, which is in reference to the Grinch, but in reality could be described properly, biblically, in reference to all of us. Your soul, it says in the bridge of that song, is an appalling dump heap, overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of the most deplorable rubbish imaginable. Mangled up and tangled up knots. Uh, this is the way, however, that God's Word, and I'm glad we can laugh together, but this is the way that God's Word puts it for us. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Isaiah 64, verse 6, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Romans three twenty three. for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as a Christian, as we celebrate Christmas, as we near the great day of Christmas morning, as we celebrate it all this season and all of this month, there's an understanding for the believer that Jesus coming on Christmas, that, that the response of God's heart as a, as a result of surveying our sin caused God to come and be Emmanuel, to be God with us. Say amen if that's good news. It caused him to be the Savior, to be the Jesus that would take the sins from his people, to bear upon his own body the iniquity of us all, that we might then wear the righteousness of Christ. This is why I kind of lose my mind in a good way around this season, because it's awesome, church, for the Christian. This is just incredible. Now listen to me. If you're not a Christian, if you've not repented of sin, if you've not turned from sin and accepted by faith this free gift of grace that God has achieved on our behalf, having worn our sin, then Christmas is kind of a little bit scary for you because the message for you would be that he has come with goodwill towards men, peace on earth, and you've not done anything with that. The reason for which he came to be Emmanuel and to save us from our sins, you've not done anything with that. Uh, not only does that totally wreck your whole Christmas season, but spiritually that's definitely not nothing. That's, that's 
the most important thing, that you would turn from sin and trust the Savior and understand that the greatest events of all of mankind that ever will be, that now you're the recipient of his righteousness because you have received this free gift. It's free, y'all. That's awesome. That's really great that it's free because it wasn't free to have that righteous standing, but he paid for it in his life's blood. These are the things that we get excited about with Christmas. So if you're not a believer become one. If you've not turned from sin, repent of sin. Tell God with a contrite heart that you're sorry for fornication, that you're sorry for sexual perversion, that you're sorry for a lying tongue and adulterous mind. Turn from that sin and trust the Savior. And the promise of God's Word is that He will freely and abundantly pardon. That would make it a good Christmas for you, dear friend. Uh, Look now to chapter 2. We've seen something of this man named Joseph that God in his sovereignty chose to be the adopted father of the Son of God. We've seen some things of our Lord. And then we come to chapter 2 where we read and it says, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened up their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So now we're introduced to Herod as well as the wise men. Show the next picture, guys. We have a picture of Herod. Uh, Something I appreciate about this depiction is is actually from coins that have been uncovered in uh, archaeological digs and inscriptions on walls and these kinds of things. It's understood that he probably looked pretty similar to the picture that you see behind me. This is known as Herod the Great, and more appropriately, he would be named Herod the Not-So-Great, because if you know your Bible, you'll know that he came from a long line of Herods, as it were, and they were a nasty, a nasty bunch. Just for a reference, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, was the Herod who condoned this, the beheading of John the Baptist. And if you know your Bible, the Christmas story, you'll know that when he realized that he had been bamboozled by the wise men, that he was, they would not come back to him. To he, His intention was to kill this prophesied of King Jesus. And then he ordered for what they call the massacre of the innocents, for all the boys uh, age two and under in the surrounding regions to be annihilated. And uh, so Herod was not a good individual. 
in any way. He was basically the opposite of Joseph in all of these ways, and he essentially wanted what every tyrant wants, and it's to preserve and gain more power. And they are threatened as it, is, as it was then, as it is today. They are threatened greatly, very much so, by the thought of people worshiping and serving Jesus as the highest king. And uh, we see elements of those things in our world today even. I heard about just a tragic story this week that in China there were 10 people that burned alive in a building and the reason for it was because they had been locked. The door to their apartment had been welded shut as of um, COVID protocol. I don't think that the officials were really worried about COVID when they're letting them burn alive in the building. I just think that maybe that is the case. Uh, but they, they are a power-hungry people. They're tyrannical in that country, as we know. And, and, they, and they're not willing to even stop at bloodshed so that they can have their power expressed, welding the door shut to the apartment. Uh, and as was the case for Herod when he ordered for all of these young boys to be annihilated in hopes of extinguishing this King Jesus. Uh, a modern-day version of Herod would certainly be the tyrants that we know of to be in China. Uh, you think of many others in our culture. Gavin Newsom would be another that could be likened to a modern-day version of Herod. He's even willfully placed himself in the place of Herod, making, making California this, this champion state for for abortion, it's, it's grotesque and terrible, and, it's, and you see it. You see the tyrannical movements. You see that they'll stop at nothing to be able to express the power, and they don't, they don't stop at any to say that God is the one who determines when life is. They don't stop at any to say that God is the one that says we ought to preserve life. They, they don't give any respect to that, as is the case for Herod the Great. Uh, but thankfully, the sermon doesn't end on that note. We then come to the wise men. Guys, go ahead and show that picture if you would. We're actually unsure of the number of wise men that there were. Uh, the Bible actually never says that there were three wise men. Isn't that interesting? Because most every depiction we have depicts three. Now, it may have been three. The thought that it came from being three is because there were three gifts. But there may have been 50 of them. We don't even really know. So it's helpful to know that the thing I appreciate about this picture is in most depictions it shows the wise men coming to bow before a, a newborn. And we know that obviously was not the case. It probably took about two years for the wise men to make their journey, which is why Herod ordered for the boys two and under to be extinguished. And it depicts here this boy, this young boy, probably between two and three years old, and the wise men coming to present their gifts. Now, I just want you to see for a minute these wise men. They were Old Testament scholars. We know that they were incredibly well acquainted, incredibly well acquainted with the Old Testament, particularly the prophecy that had to do with Jesus coming, with the prophecy of the Messiah coming to seek and to save that which was lost, to forgive his people. They were wise in these things. We know of these men that they were not only wise, they were scholars, they were very, very rich, uh, they were probably very influential. They were probably kings and political leaders of their day. They were probably incredibly influential. They were probably very, very comfortable in their place of leadership, giving them the freedom to be the scholars they were then to leave. So you're dealing with however many men, with however many wise men it was, highly educated, very influential, incredibly rich, and I hope that you saw their response when they come before this approximately two-year-old Jesus. It says that they fell down 
and worshipped him. Notice how it doesn't say that they, they didn't kneel down. They fell down. If I asked one of you to come up here and, and give us a demonstration of kneeling, you could do that and it wouldn't be no big deal. If I asked you to come up here, one of you to come up here and give us a demonstration of falling flat on your face, that would be utterly embarrassing. This was the response of the wise men. Wise, powerful, scholastic leaders of their day, rich, wealthy, they fell down. And once they had gained their composure, they then presented three gifts that we know to mean something. And if you were here last Christmas Eve, you'll remember how I preached of the three telling gifts of the wise men. We know that they gave before Jesus, they gave him gold, which was the the standard gift to give to a king. They knew that this boy, this Jesus, that he was indeed the king. They gave him frankincense, which was a special, special kind of incense that in the Old Testament was only to be used in the worship of God. These wise men knew that this two-year-old boy, this two-year-old Jesus, that he also was God. How humble you'd have to be as such a leader, as such a wise, powerful, rich leader to have searched the Scriptures and humbly received them in your heart to know that he is not only king, he is not only God, but then they also gave him the thing that I think perhaps is even the most interesting. They gave him myrrh which if you know ancient history, you'll know was an embalming agent. It's what they put on dead bodies to preserve otherwise rotting flesh. What does a two-year-old have to do with an embalming fluid? These wise men were so wise, they had so searched the Scriptures, that they knew that He also was the Savior, that He also was the sacrificial Lamb of God. Yes, they even only with their Old Testaments would have known these things and known them very, very well. Who are the modern-day versions of wise men? The modern-day versions of wise men would be people who reverence Jesus as king. And hear me and hear me close, church. There's, There's movements in our world, and they've been going on for a long time, but they manifest themselves in music and documentaries and all kinds of theological movements that, that, that brings Jesus down to the level of being our homeboy. I'm going to tell us all very, very passionately, but very sternly also, we ought to reject as a church all notions that Jesus is our homeboy. Does he love us? Immeasurably so. Is he gracious and compassionate, and does he have a good heart for us? Unspeakably so. But let us not forget here at New Covenant Community Church that Jesus is our king. He is not our homeboy. If you could imagine being in the physical presence of Jesus, you wouldn't give him a fist bump. You give your buddies fist bumps. Your, your response, like all that encountered the glory of God in such a way, would be to fall flat on your face. He is a king, church, and these wise men knew it, and how humble they must have been to have searched the Scriptures and known the truth in their heart that this was a king, that this was a God, that this was going to be the sacrifice upon which God would place their own iniquities, and it caused them to fall flat on their face before the Savior of the world. The modern-day versions of wise men are those who worship him as God. Uh, Again, church, reject all notions that Jesus was just a teacher. He was a teacher, but that wasn't the only thing that he was. 
common in our world today, very common. Even a conversation I had just a week ago with somebody who used to be, as far as we would understand, to be a believer in this church who's now no longer a part of the fellowship, I think to make it known that those who went out from us, that, to make it known that they were never actually of us, and having a conversation with this individual, he says, well, I just believe that Jesus was just a teacher and that he wasn't God. The Pharisees struggled with the same thing. As you read your Bibles in the New Testament, you'll know that the disciples, as things progressed, they started to reference him as Lord. But the Pharisees always called him rabbi or teacher. They did not reference, reference him as God. These wise men had read, and I believe probably even knew verbatim in their heart, word for word, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I believe that the wise men knew that, which caused this great response of worship. I believe they also likely knew Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The modern-day version, versions of wise men are those that not only reverence him as king and worship him as God, but also those who understand his sacrifice. Another verse that I believe the wise men probably knew, and again, perhaps was the very thing that had flooded their hearts as they had memorized the Scriptures and so intricately knew and experiencing that first Christmas in such a sweet and special way. I just wonder, and I don't know this, I don't know this, but I wonder as, if, as they're entering that house, Picture it in your mind. And they see Jesus with his mother Mary. I just wonder as, as, as their bodies collapse onto their faces before the king of all glory. I just wonder if Isaiah 53, 6 came into their heart where it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I just wonder in my heart, did they just have this overwhelming sense that this was going to be the one that would bear upon himself all of their own iniquity, and it caused them to fall flat on their face before the King of kings and Lord of all lords. How reserved we are, church. How prideful we are in our intellect. How, how much we champion the way others view us. And how much I am convicted by these wise men who cared not. They had all the accolades. They had all the wealth. They had it all, church. And yet, because they had believed the Scriptures, their act was one of great, compassionate worship that was absolutely in accordance with the truth of God's Word. So, that's the introduction. The thing I really want to say to you, for, I, I've addressed... For the non-believer, if you're not a believer, turn. Turn from sin. Become like these wise people still obey Him. They still search the Scriptures. They still understand Him to be the Savior of the world. And you even, dear person that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that has not repented of their sin, you even have an advantage over that of the wise men and that they simply had the prophecy of what was to come. You, dear sir, you, dear madam, get to see of what happened. You got to see. They knew that this Jesus was going to be the one upon which God would place their own iniquity. You and I got to see the crucifixion of precisely exactly how it happened. 
What a great blessing it is to have the completion of Scripture. How awesome it is that you get to see all that, making it even, even more so. Even nature alone is enough to proclaim the reality and truth of God that you would not sin against Him in your heart. But you have the completed Scripture before you. No one is without excuse to turn away from this great free gift. And it's free. It is not gained by works. Receive it. And if you've not, please Please come talk with me. I'd love nothing more than to share with you, again, this great gospel that we have been given as a church by Jesus himself to preach and to proclaim in the world. But where I really want to bring us, and I I promise I'm almost finished, where I really want to bring us is for Christians, listen to me now, believers. Let's do more than simply intellectually survey the picture of the horse on the calendar. I'm inviting you this Christmas to reach out your hand and to feel the warm blast from its lungs. I'm inviting you this Christmas morning when you wake up. For the, no one should celebrate Christ, Christmas like a Christian who is familiar with the Scriptures. Somebody say amen, please. And the world has it completely backwards because their, their greatest reason for celebrating is all of the other peripheral stuff, the gifts and the trees and the lights and the singing and the feasts and all those things. And those things are all good and great. But for the Christian who knows and sees and understands all of these things as we experience for Christmas, let us wake up on Christmas morning, saints, and let us put our hands up and say, sin has been dealt with. My sin, my iniquity has been dealt with by a Savior on a cross. The whole story is there before me. So then let's celebrate. Let, no one should celebrate Christmas like a Christian who is familiar with the Scriptures. We ought to celebrate with feasts and lights and singing and music. No one ought to be able to celebrate with such a passion and fervor as us because we understand that our iniquity, the thing that separated us from God, has now been dealt with in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's awesome... Say amen and clap your hands for the Lord our God is awesome. Let us experience Christmas and love it. Let us love this great promise being fulfilled. So celebrate, yes, let, let, it, let it burst forth into a bubbling overflow of celebration this Christmas with the root understanding that sin has been dealt with, the purpose for which he came was for our sin. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. I hope you see just a little bit why I lose my mind in a good way right about this time of the Christmas season. I'm going to invite those that would help us in worship now to come. As we find some time right now, as we carve it out in our, our, the time of our service where we are quiet before God. When I say experience Christmas, I'm not trying to have some kind of fancy sermon title that just gets people excited thinking we're going to put on some kind of show. No, I want people to see the scriptures and for their celebration of this great season to be so intricately woven with the truth that sin has been dealt with. It was prophesied of. It was foretold of. We see it all having come into fruition. And now you and I are the recipients of that. What a gift. Somebody say amen. What a great gift of salvation. None greater And let us worship him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we quiet our hearts now, to simply reflect as we are filled with your spirit, as we're filled with the truth of your word, to simply now reflect on what this Christmas season represents, what it's about, the root of the reason for our rejoicing. 
we take some time now to quiet our hearts, to be reminded, to be filled, and to experience Christmas in a way that perhaps we, even believers that have been your children for decades upon decades now, to experience it perhaps in a sweeter and more special way than ever before. It's in the great, holy, and matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let's take some time for reflection, and then in a moment they'll invite you to stand as we finish in song.